Good morning. Welcome to Restoration Church. My name is Ben Rodriguez. I'm one of the elders here, and um, so good to have everyone here. We're we're few, but we're we're that's that's okay. We're we can be strong in, in our few numbers as well. Um, so uh, Kevin's on uh, vacation, his annual vacation with his family. So we just uh, uh, pray that uh, he's going to be refreshed and restored there uh, as they're having fun. Um, and uh, so I guess introduce our, our speaker today. That's Dan Hayes, and so we're so privileged and uh, honored that uh, Dan could join us and, and preach this morning. Um, Dan, if, for I just met Dan this morning kind of officially, but uh, Dan uh, is the director of the Acts program uh, there in Titan with uh, uh, Great Commandments Ministries. Acts is a, a program where uh, they, they take um, uh, high school graduates to college age for about a semester, and they come and be, you know, depth in, in, theological studies, in-depth theological study and discipleship, and, and then a month-long or two-month-long uh, mission trip uh, across seas. Um, and uh, Dan is also, uh, I think, leads the NUMA group on Tuesday. It's a college-age group uh, for, for young folks, uh, Bible studies and whatnot. So, and, uh, and then Dan also is an elder at uh, Highland Community Church. So all that said, the one thing I... I, I so my, our, my kids played soccer, uh, upward soccer, and, and I didn't really meet Dan or talk to him then, but all I knew is this guy was handing out hot chocolate to, like, a bunch of kids, and my, my kids were like, oh, we're going over here, Dad, and I'm like, wow, that's a nice guy with this hot chocolate. It was a cold cold Saturday, so it was, uh, I was like, man, this guy's awesome, so with that, um, Dan, uh, come on up. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Appreciate it. Yeah. Great. Father God, just thank you so much for, um, for Dan being here, God, thank you uh, for his heart. I already know that, you know, God, you've given him uh, words this morning. And um, just pray you bless our time together. Bless, uh, bless Dan and his family, uh, Lord. Um, we just thank you and give you all the honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Awesome. Thank you. I thought I recognized your face, but I was trying to picture it was the free hot chocolate. <laughs> so. Well, this is... If I don't fix this now, I'm going to mess with it the whole time, so I'll try not to. Um, yeah, my name's Dan, again, like, like Ben just said, and I will give you just a brief introduction. More, I think the main, the main things you need to know about me are that I, do, I love Christ, I love Jesus. Um, that's probably the most important. My desire is to glorify Him, to honor Him, to, to praise Him to take everything in my life and direct it so that other people know Jesus more and love Jesus more. So that's kind of my giveaway where I'm coming from. I have a great family, uh, four kids, Eden, Lucas, Noah, and Shepard, all kind of Bible, Bible nerdy names, but we like the Bible and we're nerds, so that's fine. Fits us. And I can take their names and put them together and preach the gospel. Um, you know, God created us in the garden to be with him. And I can go right on down. But we sinned and God flooded the earth. No, and on and on. So, um, and a beautiful wife who's incredible. She's, they'd be with me, but we have our, our church is having a big VBS outreach church in the park this morning right now. So, um, so they're not. But it's my family. And then, um, like, like Ben said, I direct Acts. I met Kevin about 10 years ago with bringing Acts students down to the Madison house when he worked down there. And um, we've interacted back and forth. He's come out and preached at, at Newm at the college ministry. And um, I've been wanting to get down here and see what's happening. I've heard good things. And 
Um, so it's a privilege to be here. Um, quick snippet on Acts, because Kevin told me to talk about it a little bit, and that it, it is, Ben, you did a great job um, describing it, not knowing much about it. So um, it is, our aim is to mature, um, mature people, mature college-age students, to, to build them up in their faith. We work with college-age students. They come up for four months on campus out in Tyaton. There's a little orchard and a place that God's given us, and they sacrifice work and school and chances to make money, and they pay to come to a place where they get no credit um, to, to seek Jesus. And so we get a really ripe, hungry, desiring um, group, and we get to pour into them for, for four months at a time. And um, That's a unique segment of the population, I think. A lot of times, um, there's, a, there's a statistic, 70% of college-age students, um, seniors, if there's any seniors in the room or people graduating soon, 70% of you faithful um, graduating seniors who head off to college, stop going to church, walk away from the Lord, um, stop your faithful, consistent walk with Christ when you hit that time of transition. And so there's a there's a huge need, I think, at that crossroads seasons for people to, to be discipled, to be given the word and fed the word and challenged to live out their faith in a real practical way. So um, if you guys haven't, I think we all need that. If you guys haven't noticed, um, the world is, is not neutral towards Christ or towards Christianity. Um, it takes offense at Christ. It takes offense at Christians. It's rather hostile. There's um, lies constantly coming up, constantly put out on, on billboards and in culture and, and within the church. A lot of times lies coming at us from every direction that come up against the scriptures. So we need to know them and we need to be built up and established in our faith. So it talks about in Colossians 2. And so this already is, is this discipleship, this maturing, this bringing people in contact with the gospel is already a, a big desire and passion of mine. And so when Kevin gave me 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10 to preach out of, it's like, absolutely, this is, this is the foundation for what we do and why we do what we do. This is talking about, um, about maturity, the, the context of the passage. You guys went through 1 Peter, the first couple of verses last week, I believe. The context for the passage we're going to cover today is a context of maturity. It's talking about, as believers, to believers, that we need to crave or desire pure spiritual milk. The milk of God's word. That we, we should desire and hunger for God's word. Because we believe that God's word is actually God's spoken message, God's truth revealed to us. That we, with God's word, can know him. Can know what life is for. Can know what life's about. Because this is the means that God has given us to grow, then we ought to crave it and desire it. Because this is what's going to move us on to maturity. And it says that we might grow up into our salvation. In First um, Peter 2, 2 there. Long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation. And that's the context that, for what we're going to get into today. The second, the second thing I love about this verse is that it's really gospel-centric. It's, it's about Jesus. It's about the gospel. It's about who we are in Christ. About our identity in Christ. Um, it's not just um, mature by doing good things and by being a good person, but it's maturity linked to what Christ has done for you. And when you grab a hold of who you are in Christ, then maturity is going to produce. It's going to swell up in you. 
And for me as a, as a Christian growing up, this was a big disconnect in my life. I was raised in the church, and I heard the message. I knew Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I accepted him when I was five years old in a backyard club. A clown actually did some magic trip, tricks and related the story of Christ. So, so I guess you could say I was saved by a clown when I was five years old. Um, and it was sincere. I, Jesus want, I wanted Jesus to come into my heart because I, I knew I was a sinner, and if he still wanted to come in, that was great with me. I don't, I don't know my, the depth of my understanding, but I believe it was sincere. But from that point on, how I understood the gospel was a point in time when Jesus saved me from hell. A past tense experience of, in my faith. And then the rest of this working out in Christianity. How do I make decisions? How do I do things? It was more about just me trying not to do the bad things, two bad things, to deserve God's punishment or to try and do enough good things to earn God's favor. And the gospel seemed to kind of be a, a background noise in my life more than anything else. But the scripture and the context for the passage is, is that we don't leave the gospel. The gospel increases and it grows up, that we are to grow up and mature, like just as we receive Jesus by faith, that the gospel is the thing that came to us and saved us and actually transferred us from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Just as we came to Christ through the gospel, so we continue to grow up in the gospel and be raised up into maturity through it. It's continuing to believe in Christ and what he's done in our position in Christ as God's chosen people, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation that will mature us and then move us out into a priestly service, into the work that God's called us to do. And the order of these things is really important. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to see it in the passage. So let me pray, and we'll read the passage, and then um, just kind of work, work our way through it. Again, Father, we, we believe that this is your word. We believe that it was written and preserved, God, perfectly through human authors, God, but completely under your inspiration and completely without error and completely trustworthy. And God, we pray that, that you would open our ears to understand and to hear and to um, have wisdom to know how to apply your scripture to our lives specifically and the mess of the world. God, that we could live as your chosen people and uh, minister as your priests and honor your name, God, in these ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's read the passage, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying... These are quotes here. Behold, I am laying a, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
And I'm thankful <laughs> for this passage. I'm thankful for this mercy. I'm thankful for the change that it produces when we understand what Christ has done for us. We're going to look at specifically our position in Christ as believers. We're going to look at two things. What is our position in Christ? What, what's our identity would be another word for that. What's our position or our identity in Christ? And then how do we live out our position in Christ practically? From that place of realizing who Jesus says we are, how then do we go out and serve and minister? And those are the two main things we're going to be looking at this morning. Peter gives us a couple pictures to help us understand what, what our position is really like. The first thing he gives us is found in verse 5, actually both of them in verse 5. He says, we're like living stones and we're like priests. We are, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. He tells us, first, we're like living stones. And, and the picture is just, um, it's pretty clear when you, when you consider what the picture is. Stones that are living are stones that are being used in a building. If, it, if they're not being used, then they're not living. They're, they're useless. They're set aside. But if they're being used to hold up or to the, the roof or the cornices or, or whatever it is, um, then they're living stones. It's the, uh, you can imagine a, a, a field of, of big boulders. You've got bit, one big cornerstone that you set your first stone to build your structure. And how you build off of that, if the cornerstone is not perfect, then the entire building is going to be off in some way. But if the cornerstone is perfect, then the stones that you take and you place off of that, even if they're a little warped or um, messed up in some ways, it's still going gonna, gonna to have that, that starting point. Is that right? You're, I'm talking to an architect here. It's like checking my, fact-checking me. Um, so that's, that's the idea, is that, is that the stones have their value because they're placed upon the cornerstone, not because the stones are perfect. The stones are living stones. What makes them living stones is not that they're more special than any other, but the fact that they are being built upon the cornerstone, which the scripture says here is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and Peter's going to make a case for that in the next five verses. Because there is, there is Jesus Christ, if you think back to when this is written, Jesus Christ was, not, was, was on earth not very long after. The people are wondering, who is this guy? He made some incredible claims. Some people are following him. Everywhere they go, the world is being shook up. The Jewish nation especially is just being rocked by, because of the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is changing things left and right. And so Peter is, is presenting a case that Jesus is actually the cornerstone of the Jewish faith. He's the cornerstone of salvation. He's expected and prophesied from scriptures, and he's going to start quoting now from the Old Testament, from Psalms and Isaiah, and saying, here's what was predicted. Okay? And he's building a case for Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. So twice from Isaiah, once from the Psalms, here's what he says, verse 6, for it stands in the scripture. What's he referring to? The Old Testament, Isaiah, Psalms. Stands in the scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And then think of John 3, 16. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
It sounds like a, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejection, rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. John 3, um, 3.18, whoever believes in him is, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Does that sound like the gospel message? Whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be put to shame. But some don't believe. And that he, Christ becomes to them a stumbling block or a rock of offense. Some believe and accept Christ while others hear the words of Christ and they, and they can't take it. It doesn't fit into their worldview, into their paradigm. Or it, it becomes offensive because of the things that he says. If you think back on some of the things that Jesus said... Just some of the statements that we have from the gospel. This is, he said, whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's, that's fairly offensive to the, to the ears. Whoever, whoever cannot, is not willing to die is not worthy to be my disciple. Okay? Um, how about no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. Jesus is claiming supremacy over every other pursuit in life. Everything else that's important and special to you, doesn't matter compared to Christ. I am more important. What if I said that in your world? It could be offensive. Unless I was God and was able to prove it and back it up by signs and miracles and raising from the dead and things like that. Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. He's claiming superiority, supremacy over family, over family obligations, over good things in life. He says, no, leave those things. You follow me first priority. Claim. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You guys ever heard that's so exclusive? That's not tolerant? How can you say there's only one way? What about all these other religions? What about all these other good people? Man, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed exclusivity. He opened the doors for everyone. <laughs> there's no, you have to be good enough, smart enough, be able to, um, reach a certain state, mental state in your mind, everyone's welcome to Christ, but there's only one way. He claimed exclusivity, and that bothered people. Jesus said, truly, truly, this is a hard one. This was a hard one for the disciples. They said, this is a hard saying. How can we understand this in John 6? But Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's a hard one. For me, and is a hard one for the disciples, but Jesus is claiming that without someone somehow partaking in the, in the spiritual life of Christ, then there's no way you can expect to partake in eternal life with God. He's saying some hard, difficult things, and so people stumble. Some stumble. But it's the, it's those who stumble are those who disobey, according to this scripture. Those who believe themselves already to be righteous. Those who think that on their own, they can make their way towards the Lord. Those who, who think themselves too good and God not good enough. Those are the people who are coming to Christ and stumbling. It's in this way, as people hear the claims of Jesus, they say, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't believe it. I can't, I can't believe it. And we can put this in our own language. We've heard these things. I, can't, I could never believe this. I'm not that bad. 
I don't deserve hell. How could you even, how could a loving God send people to hell? I could never believe in a God who would send people to hell. I reject that completely. I don't believe it. I won't obey it. I will not follow that God. And that's how it unfolds, often subtly, but that's how it unfolds, unbelief, because of the gospel message. What it says is that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that's offensive to people. It's in this way that Jesus became for many a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They misunderstand the justice and the righteousness of God. They, they think God not, not that, they think themselves not that bad. They think God not holy enough. But God is holy and righteous and just and perfect and pure and spotless. But for those who have, have, come to believe in Christ. Christ becomes precious. It says in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stumbling. The honor, the preciousness, that Christ is precious and an honor because when we believe, we partake in everything that God says about us because of the gospel. Now becomes true. This is an honor and a privilege to get to tell people that they can be forgiven of sins. It's an honor and privilege to know myself and to know my sin and yet to be put in positions where I get to be a minister and a priest and a servant of God in spite of my sins, in spite of my past, in spite of the things that weigh us down. Jesus Christ becomes God's precious and corner, chosen, precious and chosen cornerstone for us. When we put our faith in him, Christ then makes us these living stones that follow. He takes us and builds us upon the cornerstone. The living stone, Jesus. Little living stones, those who follow Christ in faith. Peter declared it. Jesus is asking in Matthew 16, who do, who do people say I am? He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the one who rescues us from our sins. And Jesus says, ah, <laughs> On this rock, on that confession of faith, of truth, on this rock I will build my church. Any other foundation than Jesus Christ will crumble. Any other foundation. He is the rock, he is the cornerstone. And we get pictures of this all through scripture. The wise man built his house upon the rock. (laughs) The foolish man... The the foolish man was the one who heard, both heard the gospel, both heard the truth, but the foolish man was the one who did not obey the words that were spoken. You should go back and read that story. I missed that for a lot of years. Oh, they both heard, they both knew, but one obeyed and one did not. Christ is the cornerstone. He is our foundation. And as living stones, we stake our lives on that truth. We stake our lives on it. We build our lives upon it. He is true. And everything he said will certainly come to pass. And that takes us being built on that foundation. Here's maybe where um, my experience last night comes in as a story. Last night we were evacuated. A fire came down the hill um, in our house. I could touch my shop and then I can touch where the ashes are this morning. Um, I have four kids. We we ran out of that. Ran out of there. (laughs) Um... So I haven't slept much. I smell like smoke and I'm wet from putting out a fire this morning. Um, I don't care. (laughs) I have Christ as my cornerstone. We left. We got out of there. 
And we just, like, I was almost hoping it would all burn down. You know, it's, we have good insurance and all that sort of stuff, but it's like, I don't need any of that. I have, my life is built upon Christ the rock. I can weather these things because I am built upon Christ. I was at a funeral last week. Man, our, minis- our ministry, I might cry, I'll try not to. If I do, don't tell my wife. She's only seen me cry a couple times. Um, I was at a funeral last Thursday for Dave Hawes. Dave Hawes is, um, a lot of you guys probably know him. He was a successful realtor. He was the chair of our ministry board at, at Great Commandments Ministries. He was a friend. He sold us a, or got us into a couple houses. A lot of my decisions I made are because of him and his counsel. Um, he was incredibly involved in the community. He was chair of the, the Union, or he was on the Union Gospel Mission Board. He was an elder at Westside. He was involved with us in a lot of ways, and he ministered to everyone he sold a house to or worked a deal with on one side or the other. Dave was incredibly successful. He had real estate and properties and a family who loved him and a testimony. And there's a lot of things in Dave's life where he could have pointed and said, that's the reason, that's the reason I am the way. And Dave was constantly, if you knew him, especially in his last four months, he was constantly pointing to Christ as his cornerstone, as the foundation, as the one true thing that lasts. Dave was given four, four or five, six months to live. That's about as long as he lived. And um, in the last three or four months, I saw, saw Dave use his um, trial, his sickness, um, to raise thousands of dollars for ministries. I saw him come to our college ministry and preach on James about the brevity of life. I saw him um, gather his realtors and coworkers in his office and, and plead with them to accept Jesus. He intentionally sat down with members of his family and his grandkids and had them one by one in his house and pleaded with them. And his advice was constantly the same. Trust Christ, believe in Christ, live for Christ, nothing else matters. Jesus was Dave's cornerstone in his life and in his death. He was a living stone. In that way, he was a living stone being used for the building of Christ's kingdom. I know people are saved because of what Dave and what his family experienced and more what they will. He was being used. He was propelled out because of his love for Jesus. He was propelled out for for ministry. This is what we're all to be like and so we can stop and consider our lives for a second. Is Christ right now your cornerstone? Is that what you're building your life upon? Or are you building your life upon wealth, success, family, spouse, education, fill in the gaps? There's so many things that are constantly vying for attention. And those things are all given to you as gifts for God, intended to be used for his glory and for his ministry, but they cannot take the place or they will crumble from beneath you. My house could burn down. Your, your health could be taken. Any of this stuff could be stripped away. Christ is our cornerstone. Are you a living stone believing that Christ Believing that like Christ, you are chosen by God, that you are precious in the sight of God, and that you are, verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I love that, that, that God sends Christ as our cornerstone and then brings us into what he's doing. He planned it from the beginning. 
He's continuing it. He's victorious, but he comes and says, let me use you. Not because you're good and special or better than anyone else, but let me use you to build my kingdom. And he, and he declares of us when we trust by faith that our sins are forgiven in Jesus, that he is the way when we believe his words. He comes and he changes us and he says, okay, here's now how I look at you. You, sinners, <laughs> you, adulterers, you, thieves, you, liars, you, such were some of you, but now <laughs> I see you as, God, as my chosen people, as my royal priesthood, as my holy nation. A people for my own possession. And this has to sink in because this is the, this is the, the motivation, this is the thing that is going to endure you, that's going to carry you through. It's, if, you, if you get this backwards, work first, try and earn God's approval, you will burn out quickly and you will fail and you will be backslidden and you will be discouraged. But if you realize what Christ has done for you and you move out from there, oh, <laughs> there's, there's just joy in that. And there's consistency and there's strength. We've got to let this sink in. We're not defined by our sin anymore. Your sin does not define you anymore. Your chosen generation. Israel was God's chosen people. Okay? Through Christ, he's expanded that door. It's not just one nation. And all along that was God's plan. God planned to choose Israel so that the nations and the world would know Christ. The world would know God. But now we are a chosen generation by believing in him. We have access to God. We have grace in our generation. And we, best, we do best to lay hold of it. We're a royal priesthood. We have the authority of a king. Jesus said, as his last words, that all power and authority has been given to me. Now go, and I'm with you. Go and do likewise. We have the authority of a king with us for ministry, for the priesthood, to do the work of God. We're his own special people. We're special because we belong to him. <laughs> because our identity is, re- is, is found in him. David Guzik, a guy, Bible scholar, describes a museum with many absolutely ordinary things. A baseball glove, a pair of roller skates, a shoes, a, a t-shirt. They're special because of who owned them. And that, that is the case with us. Because we are owned by the living God, because he pays attention to us, because he seeks after us, we have value unlike anything the world can give. We are his own special people. When we believe that God loves us, chose us, and declares us to be a royal priesthood and holy nation fit for service, that he makes us fit for service, then we're going to be motivated to go out for ministry. Okay, it's that way for us. It's, it's Before work, we believe. For our work, our work could never qualify us for priestly ministry. Our our work could never make us good enough. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 tells us that this was the case with Israel. Okay, Israel was God's chosen people, not because they were really great and awesome and huge and wonderful and spectacular. The opposite. God simply loved them. It says in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. 
that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why does God call us these things? It's, that's the hardest question for me to answer. Why me? Why do I know what I know and believe what I believe? Why, why do I know the gospel? God loves God loves me. I, I don't have a good answer for that. Deuteronomy 9, 6 just affirms that again. It's not Israel's righteousness. It's not their goodness. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God has not given you the promised land. It's not sending you into this good land to possess it because of your own righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. <laughs> You're a stiff-necked people. Still, God loves us and chose us and calls us and invites us to come and to believe in Christ be transferred from darkness to life and to be called his chosen people. Israel didn't qualify themselves. They couldn't qualify themselves. We couldn't qualify themselves. But verse 10 says, in 1 Peter, verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's because of God's own love and mercy, because he first loved us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's because of his abundant grace and mercy alone that, that when we believe on him, we're declared to be a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for his own possession. Our identity and position are firmly fixed in Christ, firmly grounded in what he's accomplished past tense for us. So now we go live from that place. When we believe this, then we're ready to go and engage in the work that Christ has called us to. Last, well, second to last point. Our position in Christ then propels us into ministry. 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us that for Christ's love compels us and moves us out. We're, we're pushed out. We can't help it when we realize what, God, what God's done for us. We cannot help it. As a sinful person mercifully called into a holy position to serve the living God? I can't help it. What, all right, what can I do? <laughs> There's, there should be an eagerness when we understand the gospel. What can I do, Lord, to serve you? What's the role of the priests? The priests were reconciling people to God. They were the, inter- the mediators between God and man. They were taking the animals and they were sacrificing them. They were covering sins, um, they were following God's instructions, and they were this um, people, mediators between the people and God who would help them so that they could have a relationship with God. That's our role as priests, to bring people to relationship with Christ. How do we do this? Verse 9 tells us there's a lot of ways to do this, but this one is essential and cannot be compromised. Verse 9 tells us, it says, you are these things, right? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, or so that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. That you may proclaim the excellencies. That you may proclaim the excellencies. That you may verbally proclaim the excellencies, the goodness of God, the gospel. That you verbally preach the gospel. It doesn't have to be from a platform or a pulpit. But you have to verbally speak the name of Jesus in order for people to know and understand the good, the good news of Christ. There's a, there's a common mis, 
misconception um, that you can preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Okay, that is a misconception. The intention is right. The intention of that quote, it's probably misquoted. The intention of it is that you can't be a hypocrite. You shouldn't be a hypocrite. Your love and your actions and your deeds ought to line up with your words. But it's not an excuse for not preaching the gospel, not verbally proclaiming the gospel of Christ. You've got to verbally proclaim the gospel of Christ. Because I can do a lot of good things as a Buddhist, or as a Muslim, or as someone who's preaching a completely false doctrine of works. I can do good things and show you love. But the gospel and salvation and this transformation in our lives takes place when we hear the good news of Jesus, when we hear the good news, the message of what Christ has done, the set of historical facts that took place when Jesus, a man that lived on the earth a perfect life and died a sinless death for us, for the sins of the world, when he became our substitute and rose again and became victorious over death so that we don't have to experience it. People have to hear that message to be saved. Romans 10 tells us this. There has to be love. You have to your love has got to accompany the message, but the message has to be preached. Romans ten fourteen through 15 says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who preach the good news. So the, the exhortation is, is simple. I guess my prayer for this church is that we would be firmly rooted in our identity, in our position in Christ, that we would know and love the gospel. If you think you've moved past the gospel and you're ready for deeper, like, eschatology and more theological, heady things, don't. Those are all part of the gospel. We need to grow up and increase in the gospel. We're going to mature as we cling to the gospel, as we grow deeper in the gospel. So my, my hope for this church and prayer for this church is that you guys would recognize that Christ is the cornerstone. You build your, your life upon him. You'd recognize what he says, that he wants to use you to build his kingdom. And he does that not because you deserve it or have earned it or are more special, but because he has qualified you, making you a kingdom of priests, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation as part of his chosen possession, that he loves you, he showed you mercy. And because of that, you could go show that mercy to others. Tell them about the rich love and the mercy of Christ by verbally proclaiming the truth of the scriptures. Let me pray for this church and go from there. Father, thank you. Thank you for your good news. Thank you for the word of God that we can study it and that what I can grasp as a kid, as a five-year-old, that God loves me even though I'm a sinner, Lord, can become more and more beautiful, more and more treasured, God, as I study your scriptures. Thank you for the access to your word, for the access to the truth. Thank you for the truth being that we are saved, that we have mercy, that we have assurance. God, that if everything else in our life crumbles, if we get cancer, if our house burns down, if relationships fail, Christ, you are the cornerstone. May we build our life upon you. And may we point others to you, God, as we proclaim the truth. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.